Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today to worship you, Lord, to hear your word read, to sing worship songs to you. Thank you for allowing us to approach your throne of grace with our concerns, trusting that you love us and you care more about us than we could care about ourselves. So give us comfort in that. And Lord, as I prepare to preach your word today, I ask that you would be glorified, that your gospel would be clearly preached, that your Holy Spirit would make us uncomfortable, and that we would seek to know you more, to desire to love you and to worship you more because of the reading of your word and our worship here today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, I've been in the Army for almost six years, but the bravest thing I've ever done is to be the last person to stand between a mob of people and their lunch. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know how that would go. I'm glad it worked out. So <laughs> now that's out of the way. Anyway, I invite you to turn with your Bibles, in your Bibles with me to Luke 13, beginning with verse 22. We're going to be hanging out in verses 22 to 30 today. Have you ever made plans to go somewhere only to realize when you got there it wasn't what you thought it would be? Yeah, Iris agrees. Yeah, been there. <laughs> like, have you ever seen a postcard for a beach and you're like, that looks like a great place to go. So I'm going to go on vacation there with my family. And you get there and it's a dump. Yeah. Or have you ever made plans to visit family? And you're really excited to see them. Been waiting for a long time, but you get there, and who greets you at the door but the relative you just don't like? <laughs> Ruins the whole experience, not what you expected. Well, I experienced the unexpected on one such occasion when my beautiful wife, Bethany, and I first got married. We lived in Bentonville, Arkansas, God's country. It was great. But we were in a small group, and the small group, much like the Bayvon group, here at Christ Church, rotated houses that we would visit in. Well, one time, we got an address for a house we'd never been to before. And Bethany had the good fortune of being out of town that weekend. So it was up to me. I'm terrible at directions. So I take the address from the email, put it into Google Maps, and trust it to take me where I need to go. The following I blame on Google Maps. So, I get there, where it says, you have arrived, you're there. And, you know, I kind of figure, there's a house, there's cars parked throughout the street. I recognize these cars. I'm here. So I walk up to the door, looking at my watch, realizing I'm five minutes late. I don't like to be late. It makes me crazy, so I stop thinking, clearly. And I go up to the door, and I knock. Nobody answers. At this point, I'm like really stressed out. I hate being late. They probably all started. And you know what? We have let ourselves in in the past. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to let myself in. So I open the door, and I walk on it. What would have struck most people apparently didn't strike me. But I did notice it was that the house was empty. There was nobody inside. Well, some people might have checked the address again. I am not some people. I figured they must be in the backyard. It's beautiful outside. Probably a campfire. We'll hang out back there. So what I'm going to do is walk through the house and open up the door and walk into the backyard. And on my way to that back door, 
I notice a cat. He looks at me, and I look at him, <laughs> and it occurs to me, wasn't the host allergic to cats? If ever there was a clue staring you in the face, that would have been it. Not for me. I walked to the back door. I opened the door expecting, fully expecting to see my friends, only to see pitch black, no fire, no nothing. Nobody's there. And I'm thinking, where are they? I, I didn't think, I wasn't concerned about myself. I'm like, they missed the memo. Left their door unlocked and everything. What's this? And I start to hear some noises over my left shoulder. And so I look, and across the fence, in the yard next door, was my small group. I had walked into a place where I did not belong, a place where I was not welcomed. And that's what Jesus is warning us about in Luke 13. So I invite you to follow along with me, starting in verse 22. And if you have your little buddies here, your kids with you this morning, um, make sure that they can see, engage with the text. We're all family here. So where have we been? Lectionary preaching takes us everywhere, right? Last week, we were at the temptation, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But here we are now, encountering the road to Jerusalem. We are entering the narrow door. And Luke wants to remind us in verse 22 that the purpose has not changed. A lot has happened between the temptation and now. And yet, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And the word journey here means he had a purpose. He was in pursuit of something. The task has not changed. All of this, everything that we have read and will read in the gospel up to this point and all the way to the cross is leading to the cross. He is on his way to die for us, to save us from our sins. And on his way there, he encounters somebody, ironically, who has a question about that very thing. Follow along with me, verses 23 and 24. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter the narrow door and will not be able to. So we notice a few things right away. First one, there is only one door. And everybody gets to the door. The difference is that not everybody gets inside. Well, Jesus then differentiates between two kinds of people who come to the door, those who strive to enter the narrow door and those who seek to enter the narrow door. Well, what's the difference and why does it matter? The word strive in the Greek is agonizomai. You might hear something familiar in there. The word agonizomai is where we get the word agony from. And it means to fight or to contend for something. When it's used, it is typically used to point to athletes who contend for a prize and warriors who fight to win a war. Well, Jesus is not saying, he's not preaching works-based righteousness. He's not saying that you can do something or do enough to get through the door. But what he is saying, much like James, his half-brother, will say, and you may be familiar with this, that faith without works is dead. 
We're not earning something. We're not working for love, but we are working from love. Because if we have truly repented and believed the gospel, if we have received the Holy Spirit, we are convicted by that Holy Spirit not to live perfect lives. Because news flash for you, we're all still messy. But we are called to carry our cross daily and to follow Jesus. And that is what a striving faith is, to work from love. As an example, let's say that you just got married, okay? You have that beautiful wedding ceremony, and there's butterflies, and that weird uncle that met you at the door um, when you were visiting family is there, but it's a happy occasion. And you're celebrating and making a vow for your love in front of God, your friends, and your family. You are telling that person, I love you, and I'm going to live for you. And we are going to share this life together. But then let's say you wake up the next day, and you decide, well, that was a cool ceremony, but I'm not going to do chores anymore. I'm not going to spend time with you anymore. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do the things I know make you feel loved anymore. Well, the question then becomes, do you really love that person? J.C. Ryle, the brilliant bearded bishop of Liverpool from long ago, once said on this passage, there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. They make a profession of faith. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried Christians when they die but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable. But this is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. You see, the faith that saves is a faith that strives, that fights, because we work from love, not to earn anything, but because Jesus Christ strived for us and demonstrated what it looks like to live a faithful life in the service of God, faithful even to death on a cross. And so we gladly take up our crosses and say, I will follow you and carry my cross as well. In contrast, we meet a group of people who are striving, who are seeking, excuse me, to enter the narrow door, Seeking doesn't sound all that bad. However, in this context, the word seeking means to demand or to require something from someone else. And when do we ever seek or demand or require something from somebody else? When we think we earned it, right? So they're like, let me in. I earned it. I kept the law. I worked for love. And so they demand to be let in based on who they are. And this is what happens when they get there. When the master of the house has risen, this is verse 25 for those of you following along, and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. First notice, I'll back, there's a man that asked him a question. That man, a Jew, a religious rule keeper, somebody who kept the law. And how does Jesus address the people who knock at the door? Not as when they come to the door and they knock, but when you come to the door and you knock and you say, 
Lord, let me in. And he will say, I do not know where you come from. There's a sense of urgency here because the door will not always be open. However, there's a sense of sadness here because when you read that phrase, I do not know where you come from, word for word in the Greek, what Jesus is saying is, I do not know you from where you are. And what he is saying is that, yes, I see you. Yes, I know who you are, but there's not a relationship here. There's a distance between. It is too late now, and the distance cannot be broken. Well, how do they respond to this? I do not know you. Well, they kind of abandoned the whole I was good and kept the law thing. Now they're going, hey, we kind of knew you. Then you'll begin to say in verse 26, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And so they realize, oh, this is not going my way. God, I was familiar with you. I can recite a couple Bible verses. In fact, my good days outweigh my bad days. And yet they still cannot go in because it has to be something more than just your good days outweighing your bad days because good enough is not good enough. There has to be something more. And it all comes down to it. In verse 27 we read, he will say, and he says the same thing he's already said, I do not know where you come from, or I do not know you from where you are. Depart from me, you workers of evil. It's kind of unfortunate when you come to somewhere and say, I'm a good person, or expect to be let in because you're a law keeper, only to be called a lawbreaker. Because the reality is nobody is perfect. And so they try their hardest to work for love, to get into that door, and they come in relying on that. And Jesus says, no. You see, cultural religiosity and ritualism does not get us through that door. These cultural religious dudes, they would have been welcomed in our doors, right? They're the chameleons of the church. These are the people who do get baptized. And they do get confirmed. And they do have first communion. But what is it? It's checking their religious boxes and getting fire insurance and coming to the door saying, I've done these things only to be told I do not know you. Because my friends, nothing we can do, no sort of religion is going to get us to the door. It has to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're changing how we do baptism, confirmation, and first communions at Christ Church because these are not boxes to check, friends. These are milestones in discipleship. And so where there's not discipleship, where there is not engagement in the community of Christ, there will not be baptism, there will not be confirmation, and there will not be first communion. So we move on from there to this reality that they are facing, right? Because it's an impersonal checking of the boxes that they thought would get them through, only to realize that familiarity with Jesus does not equal faith in him. Familiarity with Jesus does not equal faith in him. And so now they're standing on the outside of this door as we come to verse 28, and what happens next? Well, in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves cast out. Who do they see in the window? The icons of their faith. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets. But the irony is that these icons, these religious icons, all predated the written law that these cultural Jews in Jesus' society were counting on to get them through the door. What do we read in our Old Testament reading today? Abraham trusted God. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith has always been the thing that stays, my friends, because nobody is perfect and nobody can keep that law. We see these words, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? The crazy thing about weeping and gnashing of teeth is that what it directs is not just sadness. There's sadness there. There's also an anger. Weeping and gnashing of teeth points to anger and frustration because they get to this point and they see these icons of their faith in the door. And rather than say, man, it has to have been something more, rather than come to their knees in repentance and trust in Jesus, they're just upset that they weren't good enough and they're not let inside. And so it's frustrating to them. And they also see these prophets who were in there. And they're like, well, they were teaching the law keeping, but in reality, they were teaching something more too. They were teaching God's promises and a faith in God's promises that saves. And Jesus reminded them, as we studied a few weeks ago in the Beatitudes, that their fathers actually hated the prophets and reviled them. And then they're faced with this reality now, that if they think that any amount of doing good is going to get them through that door, then they hate these prophets too. They've denied their teachings. They do not actually believe what has been told them, and so they see the truth they rejected. And rather than seeing a change there, we see just more frustration because their hearts are hard to the reality of the gospel, that they were trusting to be let in based on who they were. As we draw to a close, we come to verses 29 and 30. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. First they saw the icons of their faith. And now they see the refuse of society, the us's of the world, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, walking through that door. People who did not have that written law, much less did they do a good job of keeping it. Because like Abraham, like those icons who predated the written law, and like all others who entered that narrow door since that time, they believed God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. So what do we do with this? There's a lot here to look at. Well, I think our response depends on where we are in our own faith. And there are three I have for you today. Number one, if this is new to you, or if you have never repented and believed the gospel and trusted in the historical reality that Jesus lived a life you could not live, died the death you deserve to die, and was resurrected to save you from your sins, that's step one, my friends. You, nothing else matters until we get to that point. So I urge you, there's no better day than today to repent and believe the gospel. 
I imagine most of us fall into these last two categories, seeking and striving. Well, if we are seeking to enter the narrow door, if we are counting on our works and we're going to walk up and knock on that door and demand to be let inside, well, then we need to repent and believe the gospel because we don't believe it either. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if I can look at my neighbor and say, I'm better than that guy, and think that that's going to be good enough, we don't believe it. If we're checking boxes, if I say, I want to get baptized, confirmed, and have first communion, and now I've got my fire insurance, no bueno. It's not going to do you any good. You must repent and believe the gospel. And finally, for those who are striving, who have a faith that works from love, not for love, but from love, those who have truly repented and believed the gospel. Well, think about those people who came from the east, the west, the north, and the south. How did they hear? They heard because somebody told them. So if you really believe the gospel, if you're going to that party on the other side of that door, bring a plus one. You know? Come on. What does it cost to walk up to your neighbor's door? The right neighbor's door, by the way. <laughs> and say, hi, I don't know you, but my name's Zach. I like to eat food. Do you like to eat food? Let's eat food. And when the conversation leads to gospel conversation, have the courage to have that conversation. Or, shameless ministry plug. Come volunteer for youth ministry. First and third, Monday night, every month. Or the first three Wednesday nights, 6.30 to 8 p.m., right here, where you're sitting. You already know how to get here. Come on. What better way to share the gospel than to tell the children and the youth of our church that their souls matter? And that there is a way that leads to eternal life and a way through that door. But it's only through repenting and believing in the gospel. Well, guys, when I walked into the wrong door in Arkansas, I had a chance to turn around, say, I'm clearly not welcome here. There's nobody here but a cat. And leave. And walk to the next door where I was welcome where I was loved. And I walked inside, and I smelled the smell of good food. And I felt the coolness of a drink in my hand. I was greeted by name. I was welcomed by those who loved me. And that's what it's like to walk through that narrow door, to be greeted by the master who says, well done, good and faithful servant. But, unlike my Arkansas uh, fiasco, there is only one door this time. And once it's closed, it's closed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope we have in your gospel. For your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict each of us and make us uncomfortable. Draw us closer to you. Lord, that we fall in love with you again. And that we would be the kind who would strive and have a faith that works from love, or for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would enter that narrow door. Amen.